0: in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I want to speak to you about what is really an awful prospect tonight, and that is to be spiritually blind. i want to talk about the various types of spiritual blindness that exist in the world today, and. Before we enter into our examination of God's word, we're going to make our way together to the throne of heaven and speak to God in prayer. Many, many years ago, in a large southern city, a blind beggar was seen sitting on a little stool and leaning up against the building. And when someone went up close to him to place a coin in his cup, he saw a sign hanging about his neck that read, the sun is shining and I am blind. Well, that struck this passerby with a great sense of sadness and pity because here was a man who realized that he was living in a world that was filled with beauty but he could not enjoy it because he couldn't see it. The Apostle Paul, though, spoke of a multitude of people in far worse condition, people who are spiritually blind. You know, the Bible speaks of many people who were blind physically. Jesus met scores of them along the roads of Palestine and it seems like he was always touched by their plight. There were many times that he stopped and he demonstrated his power and his divinity by giving them their sight. And in the same way, the Lord has done something marvelous for the human race, for all of us tonight. Since the gospel was first preached unto man, he has been opening up the eyes of countless thousands of people so that they might see the glory of God in salvation eyes that before had been blinded by sin and by Satan. That's really Satan's objective is to blind you tonight so that you can't see the truth, so that you can't see the way out of your sinful and lost and undone condition. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan is the God of this world. And that simply means that the people of this world have made him their God as opposed to the God of light, the God of heaven. And they blindly follow Satan because they've either refused the light of the gospel, they've rejected it, or it has not yet been beamed into their hearts by hearing it. Well, Paul says that his job as an apostle was to penetrate the darkness of this world by preaching the gospel. Before Christ came and before the gospel was heralded through those men, the world was entirely steeped in spiritual darkness and blindness. The only ray of light that man had was the promise that had been made of something better to come, of the plan and the covenant that God would establish in the last days that would provide redemption for all in Christ. That was an age before Jesus effected all of that, brought it into reality. That was an age of real blindness. You talk about the dark ages in a great sense. Those were the dark ages, dark spiritually dark because of the control that Satan had had over the earth up until that point. Men were doomed from the garden and they were confounded as to what to do about it. Sin and depravity ruled the world and thus Satan is called the god of this world and yet tonight he is the god of those who reject the truth and dwell in the darkness of sin. But the wonderful thing is that the light of the gospel has lifted the gloom of sin Verse 6 tells us, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We briefly touched upon this context a few evenings ago when in the next verse the apostle says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And we noted that this term, earthen vessels, really referred to a lamp that was made of earth. And that this description applies to the apostolic office and not to Christians in general. He was saying that these apostles in whom the Holy Spirit, into whose hearts the Holy Spirit was sent. These men were the the, uh, receptacles, you might say, that were receiving inspiration from heaven. And they were disseminating that to the world. They were broadcasting that, heralding that to the world through preaching. Now, aside from the office and the work of those men, the world was in darkness and the world would continue to be in darkness. We today can walk in the light. We today can dwell in the sunlight of full revelation of Jesus Christ and of his truth because of the office and the work that those men did 2,000 years ago when they broadcast the gospel for the world to hear and they wrote it down, embalming it, as it were, for ages to come. And so today we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And we stand, if we so choose, in the sunlight of God's will and we can enjoy the sunlight of Christ's salvation. But of course we understand that there are millions of people about us, despite that, who are still perishing. They're still blind. Why is that? Well, it's not hard for the sincere and the seeking soul to find the truth. If he so desires to hear the gospel, Bibles are in abundance in this country, in this world, really. But yet millions are blind to what the Bible offers them. Why is that? Well, there are several things that lead to spiritual blindness. The Apostle Paul said the Gentile world was draped in spiritual darkness because they refused to glorify God as God and they were not thankful to God for life and its many blessings, and therefore they became vain in their imaginations according to Romans chapter one and verse 21. Well, that simply means that they rejected the overwhelming uh, evidence of creation and conscience, and they came to the conclusion that there was not a God, and as a result, they turned to empty and ridiculous alternatives. Well, it works the same way today. Supposedly learned men actually believe, men who have spent many years of their life acquiring degrees from prestigious universities, these men actually believe that the earth, that life on earth, that the universe about us, with all of its order, all of its precision, all of its intricacy, which they very well understand and they have studied. They have Many of them have devoted their life to a study of such things. And they know how well ordered the earth and the universe is. It's an amazing thing. And they turn away from that and say, all of that must have happened by chance. All of that must have been an accident. Well, oh, friends, you talk about something that's preposterous. Now, they want to laugh believers to scorn. They want to ridicule you and ridicule me because we believe there's a God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth in six literal days by his spoken word and his unlimited power. But they can turn around and tell you that the earth, the universe, life on earth, just life itself, considers some of the most simple forms of life upon the earth. And they say that happened as a result of chaos. That happened as a result of nothing. They say that billions upon billions upon billions of years ago, somehow that just in some pool of water, the first and most simple form of life emerged in the form of a simple life cell. And that that cell began to evolve through the long course of time. It not only was able to swim about in the water, but it finally grew legs and crawled out upon the land. And it finally grew hair and it started climbing trees and swinging by its tail and eating bananas and that's your great, great uncle Harry. That's what they want you to believe. And that's what they stand in front of classrooms and public schools and in universities all throughout this land teaching on a regular basis. And they want to laugh Christians to scorn for believing that there must be an intelligent designer behind this world. Millions of people in the world believe that preposterous theory of evolution, of a big bang from whence all things came. And the government even mandates that that be taught to our children in school and it's so popular and so given today, it's taken for granted as a fact when the reality is, it is yet an unproven theory. And friends, they believe something that is unbelievable because they have rejected God and that's exactly what Paul says here in Romans chapter 1. This process of spiritual degradation began when they were not thankful they refused to glorify God as God they finally came to the point of unbelief and they turned to all sorts of wild and vain and ima- and, uh, and false imaginations and they were willingly shrouded in darkness now the same thing is true doctrinally or religiously speaking in second Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 10 Paul says that some believed a lie And they were damned as a result because they did not love the truth. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. Jesus one time said that many would be lost because they love darkness rather than light. That's where they choose to dwell, according to John 3 and 19. Friends, God doesn't force anyone. God doesn't arbitrarily keep anyone in the darkness or willfully blind anyone to the truth. God's will is that all should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. But men keep themselves there by their refusal to seek out and live in the light of God's revelation of truth, his word. And they are thus willingly blinded by the devil. Well, how is the devil blinding men today despite the fact that the Son of truth is shining? I want to begin by saying that first, many people, including unfortunately some Christians, are blinded to the mercies, the grace, and the goodness of God. You know, anyone who does not realize just how good God has been to them is truly blind. The prophet said long ago, thy mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23. There's no truer statement than that. God's mercies are renewed and they are shown forth every new day. Every person that is listening to me tonight Enjoys the blessings of God upon your life to a measure that it is absolutely innumerable, inestimable. Even those who don't recognize and thank Him for what they have benefit from the goodness and the mercy of God in one way or another. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 45 that God maketh His sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. We've all been blessed in ways that we fail to recognize. Now, you know there are really two spheres of existence amongst the human family. Now all men are God's children by by essence of their physical creation and their physical existence. Man is a creation of God and he was made in the image of God. And so every person in that sense is a son or a child of God, but not in the special sense not in the spiritual sense. That particular description belongs to an exclusive group of people that the Apostle Paul used the phrase so well to describe it in Ephesians, the first chapter, and in other places when he speaks of those who are in Christ. In other words, out of the human family, there are those who are in a covenant relationship with God to the exclusion of those who are not, And they enjoy a unique relationship with God and they have access to some very special blessings and benefits that are not available to anyone else outside of them exercising faith and therefore coming in to this state of being in Christ. One of those blessings is the forgiveness of sins. One of those blessings is the hope of eternal life. Another of those blessings is the right of access to the throne of God, through the advocacy of Jesus Christ, that we in Christ can pray unto him. Men outside of Christ don't have that privilege, though they might try to use it. Those blessings belong to those in Christ. But all men are yet the beneficiary of many of God's blessings. We all enjoy the blessings of life from day to day, and we should recognize where they come from. We should realize that they're the product of God's care and God's providence and God's goodness and God's love for His creation. The old song says, Count your many blessings and name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Friends, that's a good exercise for every one of us to get into, to count your blessings. Now, I don't just mean that rhetorically, I don't just mean that in some general sense. I want to specifically ask you tonight, have you ever stopped and just really tried to count your blessings? Have you ever stopped and just tried to enumerate the many, many ways that God has blessed you in your life? I can promise you that that's something that will take a while. In fact, you'll finally just run out because God's blessings are true. His mercies are new every morning. His blessings in our lives are innumerable. Sometimes I get down and out and I get depressed about the thing, the way things are, maybe the way things are at work, maybe the way things are in the world and our country. I get upset at maybe the conduct or the behavior of some of the people that I love and people that I'm close to and who disappoint us and so forth and I get awfully down about that and I get down about the circumstances of life from time to time and I suppose we're all there from time to time. Well, let me tell you, one of the greatest things you can do, I've found in a time like that, is to make your Yourself, stop and begin to count your blessings. Because you'll find that your blessings far outweigh the woes and the ills of life. And I think that can be true. I think that could be said for just about anybody. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. Now, the problem is many of us, we don't spend much time counting our blessings. We focus on the things that are bad. I know some people who can't look on the bright side of anything. Their glass will always be half empty as long as they live. And I am convinced that if you were to give them perfect health, if you were to give them a good job, if you were to give them a mansion to live in, if you were to provide them with a million dollars to spend, they're still going to find things to complain about and they're going to talk about what they don't have that somebody else does. But now that's our shortcoming, and that indicates a problem with our attitude and our outlook on life. Because on the other side, I've known people who were faced with some of the most seemingly insurmountable circumstances and handicaps in their lives. But they can still smile. The world is still a beautiful place to them. They love other people. They're thankful for the things that are right within their life. And if we would all just get in the habit suggested by that song and count our blessings one by one, it wouldn't take long to see just how blessed we really are. Fanny Crosby is one of the most famous lyricists in the history of sacred music. She blessed the world with hundreds upon hundreds of beautiful hymn poems. And you've probably heard that she was blind from her childhood. You know, she lived to be, I think, 95 years old. And when she was only eight years old, and stricken with blindness, she penned this little poem that says, Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I won't. Now here's a woman that couldn't see with her physical eyes, but she could see a great spiritual truth. And how sad it is that there are millions of people who have their physical eyesight, but they're spiritually blind, blind to the blessings of God in their life. And friend, if you have trouble counting your blessings, let me tell you one you can immediately count. And that is the fact that when you were lost and you were undone, when you were in a hopeless and you were in an unsalvageable condition and there was nothing you could do of your own strength and of your own accord to lift yourself out of the mire of that condemnation. There was a God in heaven who loved you. There was a God in heaven who cared enough about you that he sent his son walking down the starry stairs of heaven to this sin-cursed world in order to ultimately climb the hill of Calvary and lay down his life upon the cross in your stead. And friend, if you don't count that as the blessing of all blessings, you truly are blind, though the sun is shining through the revelation of the gospel. Now, second of all, many people are blind... To their spiritual condition. They're blind to what they look like in the eyes of God. Now it really doesn't matter how a man looks to other men, although we tend to worry a lot about that. We tend to worry a lot about the physical appearance. We worry about the impression that we make upon other people. I know that we're awfully preoccupied with that because most of us get up in the morning and once we get ready to get out and about and begin our day outside of the home while we get all cleaned up and we spend a certain amount of time in front of the mirror just trying to get our hair just so-so. and. You ladies spend time in front of the mirror making sure that you've got the right color of lipstick on and then you've got the right color of eyeshadow on and you spend an inordinate amount of time perhaps getting that long beautiful hair combed and put up just the way you want it. You make sure that your outfit looks just right and all the wrinkles are ironed out of it. Well, I know some people that don't spend very much time in all of that, but... I think most people are a little bit concerned when they walk out the front door of the house that when they encounter people along the way, they don't want to make a bad impression. They want people to think well of them. And there's something to be said for that within, uh, within reason. We should be concerned about the impression that we make upon other people and that type of influence that we spread to those about us. But let me tell you, what you see when you look at a physical mirror is not necessarily what God sees. In fact, God really isn't looking at what you see when you look in the physical mirror. God wants you to look into the mirror of his word. When a man looks at himself in the eyes of God, or in the eyes of the world, I should say, he may be impressed with what he sees. He may be wonderful and fine. He may have on a nice suit. He may have a handsome face. He may have a pocket full of money. But when God looks at him... There's a great discrepancy. When God looks at him, he's just another vile and wretched sinner. You know, you can name the Hollywood stars and starlets by the dozens who were worshipped. And I literally mean they were worshipped for their beauty, for their talent, for their wealth, for their fame. And it really is a form, if you ask me, of modern-day idolatry. The way that people, and sometimes people within the church, carry on over famous people, whether they be actors and actresses or sports athletes and athletics in general. It really is a modern type of idolatry. You don't have to have a heathen pagan temple somewhere and some statue hewn out that you're bowing down before and offering some sacrifice to to be guilty of idolatry. You can worship people who are alive upon the earth whether you realize you're doing it or not and you can real and you can worship things you can worship particular uh, activities and whatever it might be and that, a lot of that goes on in the world today and people are all mesmerized by the stars of Hollywood but they ignore the fact that they died of drug overdoses alcohol abuses or shameful diseases they died being adored by countless fans but how do you suppose they looked in the eyes of god you know, God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, man looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And that makes a big difference. Let me show you how God looks at the heart of man. God sees the heart outside of Christ. And this is absolute now. There aren't exceptions to this. You can just mark it down. God looks at the heart who is outside of, of the man who is outside of Christ as corrupt, as doomed for hell. The Bible says that he's a sinner. Doesn't matter how much money he has. Doesn't matter what side of town he lives on. It doesn't matter what the color of his skin may be. It doesn't, matter, uh, it doesn't matter what his socioeconomic background may be. It doesn't matter what type of degree he holds or how many people in the world may admire him, know his name, how famous he might be. None of that matters. When God looks at him, the Bible says he's condemned. The Bible says that he's spiritually dead. The Bible says the wrath of God abideth on him. The Bible says that hell is waiting on him. The Bible says that he'll be turned into hell and he'll be cast into the lake of fire. But you don't get people to understand that today. People don't see their true condition in the sight of God and therefore they don't take their soul very seriously. Why? Listen, the type of preaching that indicts people of their sins and the type of preaching that makes people aware of the fact that they're condemned and they're a sinner in the eyes of God, that's frowned upon in a great many churches in America. That's frowned upon in a few of our own churches tonight. Oh, no, it's all supposed to be bright and brotherly and breezy and build everybody up and make them feel good about themselves and give them a sense of self-esteem and so forth. Well, I don't believe the job of the gospel preacher is just to continually stomp people and grind them down. And I certainly am not suggesting that we ever preach the gospel out of anything but an attitude of love and genuine concern for the souls of men. But I am saying that you are never going to get a man to see his need for Christ. Until he sees that he's lost. You're never going to get a man to want to be saved. Now you might get him to want to come and get a free hot dog supper. You might get him to want to come and get his car washed for free. But you're not going to get him to want to be saved. Until he realizes he's lost. Until he realizes that he's doomed for hell. Until he realizes that he doesn't have Jesus Christ within his life. And he's not abiding in the truth of God's word. Listen, that's the challenge of our day. Is getting people to see their destitute condition. Because we live in a country, we have a lot of money. We basically live a life of ease and luxury in fact compared to many parts of the world. And that's taking its toll upon people spiritually. Because really we're satisfied. We're comfortable. And we start to think, well, you know, as long as things are just going pretty well within my life, that's really all I need to worry about. God sees it differently. God sees you tonight as a wretched sinner if you have never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are outside of him. And I don't say that with any delight. I don't say that with a sense of arrogance or a sense of self-righteousness. I say that with a great sense of urgency and appeal to you that you need to see what you look like in the eyes of God. And I do you no favors tonight by sugarcoating over that. I do you no favors or anyone else any favors tonight. If I were to lead you to any other conclusion than that tonight. If tonight you've never been baptized into Jesus Christ. If tonight you're not a citizen of his kingdom. If tonight you're not living in the light of his word. You're lost. You're lost. And if you were to die tonight. You would be separated from God forever. And one day cast into the bottomless pit and the lake of fire that is called the second death. That's your future if you're outside of Christ. That's how God sees you. Though he loves you. And he wants to save you from that. But you've got to see what you need to be saved from. But now on the other hand. That's how God sees the heart of a man who is outside of Christ. But listen to how God sees the man who is in Christ. The Bible says that he is now forgiven. The Bible says there is now no condemnation for him. It tells us that he is counted a friend of God's like Abraham of old. It says that he will live forever in eternal glory. Of course, the devil comes along and he tries to pull the wool over people's eyes and he'll tell you how good you are. He'll tell you that God loves you so much just like you are that he won't let you go to hell. He'll tell you that everyone is a child of God, that everyone really is going to heaven. But that's the devil's lie. Salvation is in Jesus and it is in his will alone. And not only does the Bible testify to that, but the very fact that Jesus Christ came to this world to be crucified on the cross is the greatest witness of of all against man's lost and undone condition. The sun is shining, but many are blind to their own condition. You know, the law was given, the Bible says, because of transgressions. The law was given to see... To make man to be aware of the fact that he was a sinner and that he was in need of a sacrifice that only God could provide and that had been long afore promised. But the people to whom Jesus came were so blind and they were so blind to their own scriptures. And they were so puffed up in their own sense of self-importance and self-righteousness, they didn't see a need for that. And when Jesus came on the scene claiming to be the Redeemer, their idea of a Redeemer was a political leader who was going to break the yoke of the Roman Empire and was going to lead them to national greatness again. That was their idea of a Messiah, not a Savior to redeem them from their sins. They were blind. And there are many people in the world today who are blind in that very way. Now, the devil also blinds people to the true way of salvation. Of the ones who will acknowledge their lost condition, many are blind to what the Bible says to do about it. Some are under the illusion that all of their good and charitable deeds are enough to get them to heaven. Some people believe that that merely having their name written on a church roll somewhere is all it takes. Many believe that if they just love everybody and have a happy-go-lucky attitude toward everybody about them, that God will in kind love them enough to save them as they are and on and on and on I could go. Well, friends, they're blind to a very, very important and in fact glaring fact in the scriptures. And that is there is only one way to heaven. And that is through the remedial plan of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other prophet. There is no other system of religion that can grant you what Jesus Christ exclusively grants. And that is reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, salvation. The Bible is our only guidebook in that process. It not only shows us how wretched and lost we are, it clearly points to one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ and none other. And I don't, know how any, I don't know how much plainer the Bible could be than what it says in Acts 4 and verse 12, where the preacher of long ago said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none of the name under heaven given among men, but that of Jesus Christ, whereby we must be saved. No other name under heaven. There's no other way. There's no other plan. And as the song echoes that very sentiment, I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There is no other way but this. And I shall ne'er catch sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. Many people are blind to that. Many are blind to what Jesus says to do for salvation. Jesus said in Mark 16 and verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. How many people reject that simple statement? In fact, how many people go through their lives supposedly listening to what they believe is gospel preaching and they never even hear that statement? In years past you would see thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people at a time fill football stadiums and arenas and coliseums all around this country. And a man with great charisma and smoothness of speech would stand up before all of those millions of people and would lead them down to a bottom of a platform to do something the Bible never says anything about. Friend, take your Bible out. I challenge you. In all sincerity, I challenge you Take your Bible out when you go home tonight and read through the book of Acts where the gospel was preached to the entire world during the lifetime of the apostles after the day of Pentecost. And see if you find one example where any apostle, any prophet, any preacher in the first century church ever invited people to come to the base of some platform and kneel down and say some sort of a sinner's prayer as a formula to invite Jesus Christ into their heart. Now you find that. I'd be interested to see that if you can find it. You won't find it. Preachers didn't preach that message. Preachers weren't given that message by God to preach. The message the apostles were given by Jesus Christ to preach is recorded in Mark 16 and verse 16 when he was giving them the great commission and telling them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. Not some. Preach it to every creature. Preach what to every creature? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And any man who gets up on television, who stands before a Colosseum of people, or whether it be in a small gathering like this, and he stands before people and he urges them to be saved, and he doesn't tell them that they must be baptized to be saved, listen, he's not preaching the gospel that Jesus commissioned him to preach. He's leaving something off. He's overlooking a commandment that Jesus gave. And listen, he's allowing people to remain in spiritual blindness. The sun is shining. Are you blind to the way of salvation? Fourthly, many people are blind to the privileges and joys of the Christian life. And that's because the devil tells them look at those Christians over there who never have any fun. Look at those people who are bound and shackled by the Bible. Look at those people who can't do half of the things that you do. Their lives are all bound up by a set of rules from the Bible, and look how miserable they are. And of course, anyone who really believes that's the way it is must be blind not to be able then to turn around and see the ultimate heartache and devastation that sin leaves behind in life. Now here again, is a very obvious form of spiritual blindness in our life. And the irony is that tonight when we point it out from the Bible, and in a setting like this, and in the context of a lesson like this, I think we can all clearly see that point, but when you apply it to practical everyday life, it becomes a little more difficult to see. That's because the devil's blinding. Now the devil may convince you and the world may convince you that being a Christian and living the Christian life is a bore. That by living the Christian life, you miss out on everything that you otherwise could have and everything you could otherwise enjoy by a worldly and a sinful life. But they don't tell you about the devastation and the heartache of sin. We're surrounded by it every day. We hear it talked about on the headlines of every 6 o'clock newscast. We read it splashed across the headlines of every newspaper across America. We see the devastating consequences of sin every day about us. But nobody's attributing it to sin. Nobody's saying it's what it's sin that brought that about. No one's saying that we've got a generation of people dying of AIDS because homosexuality was accepted into this country however many decades ago and was openly practiced and that disease spread like wildfire. They're not blaming it on that. They're blaming the government or they're blaming something else or somebody else. They're not blaming what the real cause of the beginning of it was and that was sin. You know, we report and we hear in the news about people who die in automobile crashes that were brought about by alcohol and drug abuse. We hear that every night on the news. We read it every day in the newspaper. But you don't hear or read or see any journalists who are talking about the fact that really people ought to drink. People ought to use drugs. No, there's a push today to legalize that. Why, to make that even more readily available to people and even to young people? How foolish. I'm going to tell you tonight the devil is blinding people. Solomon said in Proverbs 13 and 15, good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. It is difficult. The spiritually blind man doesn't see that what? Doesn't see it that way. But friends, I'm going to tell you there is a joy and there is a peace that comes from truly being a Christian that no other religion, no other philosophy, no other way of life can even begin to offer. And if you don't see that tonight, you've been blinded by Satan. Here a couple of, or several months ago now, I was watching one of the evening cable news network programs. I've always been a big fan of Britt Hume. Anyway, I've just always thought he was just the the, uh, picture of a professional. I always enjoyed watching him when I was younger, when he was with ABC and then he moved over to Fox News Channel a few years later He was just always, to me, a very professional, distinguished, and objective journalist, has great credibility. Well, let me tell you, he soared on my chart of credibility, even though what he said, what I'm going to tell you, got him in a little bit of trouble. He was engaged in a round table discussion, a panel discussion on this particular program about the Tiger Woods scandal. We all know about that, I suppose. And the question that was being put to this panel was, what does Tiger Woods have to do to finally redeem himself and to redeem his reputation? Can he ever rebuild to where he once was? Well, of course, there were all of these comments that were coming from the panel, you know, about what he needed to do from a PR and a marketing standpoint and how he needed to project himself to the American people and how he needed to show contrition and all this, that, and the other. And it got around to Mr. Hume... And Mr. Hume, I've come to understand, is we wouldn't probably agree with him doctrinally, but he is a devoutly religious man. I understand. But he said on nationwide television, "And brother, if you don't think the sparks didn't fly after he said this, he said what Tiger Woods needs to what Tiger Woods needs to do is he needs to convert to Christianity." Because what is he, Hindu or something like that? He said he needs to convert to Christianity because Christianity is the only religion in all of the world that actually offers forgiveness and a pathway to full redemption. Now that's true. There's not a soul on this planet that can logically argue Christianity is the only religion that actually offers a pathway of redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation, and that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Listen. If that's not something to be happy about tonight, if that's not something to be joyful about tonight, I don't know what is. And listen, if you go around and your face looks like a reprint of the book of Lamentations all of the time, I don't think you understand exactly what it means to be a Christian and the joys of being a Christian, the privileges of being a Christian. The elder of the prodigal son saw his life at home with his father as a life of drudgery. He was jealous, when you get right down to it, of his younger brother who had gone to the far country and lived in sin. And when the son returned, we of course remember his father threw a great celebration in his honor. And the elder son stood out on the fringes and he pouted and he bemoaned this special treatment that his wayward brother was receiving. He remonstrated to his father saying, I never left home. I was here. You didn't do any of this for me. And his father said, Son, thou art ever with me and all that I have is thine. You know that's a picture of many modern church members today. Thou art ever with me and all that I have is thine. These things were here for you all along. They're here for you now. The sun is shining, and you're blind. Are you making the same mistake? Are you forfeiting the treasure of heaven for the empty husks of the hog pen? David knew there was great joy in being a child of God. Like so many others, he was deceived by the elusive promises of sin. He tried the wrong road. But when he hit a dead dead end, he returned to God in repentance. And he poured out his heart to God in in that prayer in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 12, begging the Lord to show mercy, to take him back. And remember what he said? He said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit and then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Folks, that's how it works. Sin takes away the joy of salvation. It takes away your salvation and it takes away the joy that comes along with being saved. But David said, restore it. Let me get it back again. Not only the salvation, David says, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And he says, when you do that, sinners are going to be converted unto thee. And there's a great influence. There's a great influence to be wielded in the life of any Christian who enjoys being a Christian. And who shows those about him that the Christian life is the greatest life that could ever be lived that the Christian life is the only life that is worth living. The sun is shining, showing us all the many joys of living for Jesus. And I ask tonight, are you blind? Are you blind? I leave you with this point, and I won't dwell on it because it really harkens to the sermon we preached last evening. But that is many people are blinded to the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death. We all know that we're going to die one day, but we don't like to think about that. We push death far out of our minds until we grow old and sick. And most of us here tonight, many of us, I'll say, would like to think that much of our life is before us. I could probably ask any number of people here today, do you think that you've lived out half of your life yet? Well, of course, logically, we have to say we don't know that. No man has the answer to that. But I think most of us would like to think that we have the majority of our life ahead of us. But, friends, there's hardly a soul that goes to a sudden grave thinking they would die when they did. You read the obituary column in your local paper tonight, and you'll read about the deaths of young and old. And I can promise you that many of the people whose names and lives you read about didn't have any idea three days ago they would be dead before the beginning of a new week. And you don't know that there's not a death shroud laying in the coroner's vehicle right now that won't cover your corpse next. Now, we should be aware of that because death surrounds us every day. Again, you don't pick up a newspaper or watch the evening news that you don't learn that no one has a promise of tomorrow. But somehow we think that doesn't mean us. The sun is shining, but we're blind. And God's word pleads with us to prepare to meet him and to live every day as if it were our last. But we so often go our way and we ignore the warning. The sun is shining, but we're blind. Are you prepared for death? Are you blind to the goodness of God? Are you blind to your true condition in the sight of God? Where do you stand tonight? I'm not concerned about what you think or how you feel. But what does the Bible say about how you stand and how you appear in the sight of God? Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you a citizen of His Kingdom? Are you living for Him? If tonight, we'd like to for- if not tonight, we'd like to afford you that opportunity. We thank you for listening to our podcast, put on by the Church of Christ, at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com.